0: And now it's time for News with My Dad, a show where we talk about the news with my dad. And on the line playing the role of my dad is, in fact, my dad, the star of our show, Joe Smith. Well, Pop, how are you doing this morning?
1: I'm full of conflicting emotions.
0: Which ones? The well, Dodgers one, that's good some news. hope. Yeah. All right. Well, let's start with, uh, my guess is not hope. I guess might be the anger. Amy Coney Baird is wrapping up her confirmation testimony. Wait,
1: wait, 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 wait. Do I get my shout-out? Yeah, let's do that. Shout it, shout it, shout it I really do need to shout-out this morning because I have two rel- closely related. First, I want to shout-out for John Jackson, the proprietor of Heroes American Café whose store, whose cafe, was attacked
0: like when you say by cafe. the
1: vandals, the thugs that tore down the Lincoln statue, that broke into the Historical Society, tried to set a fire in it, stole it. Anyway, who said he is not going to be cowed by bullets that were shot into his store. He's going to stay open and he's going to continue to stand where he stands. I just think that's wonderful, John Jackson. I hope you are listening this morning. And I want to also want to shout out for David Harris, who was a protester in the 60s, very, very much involved in protests in the 60s, who wrote a really, really thoughtful op-ed in the Oregonian this week, who where he admitted that what he and others had done had helped elect Richard Nixon that he acknowledged that the violence that they did, that the looting that happened, that the window breaking that happened, that the fires that were started that happened, elected Richard Nixon how different our history might have been had we had Hubert Humphrey as president for eight years instead of Richard Nixon for six so I just compliment both of them as my shout outs.
0: Well Bob Yeah, it it is a moment of reflection. I know you and I have gone back and forth on this and discussed it a bunch, but it is a reminder that having a smart movement, a strategic movement, a movement that has uh, objectives as well as uh, moral imperative to add to its uh, legitimate and justifiable rage makes it more likely that benevolent objectives will be achieved. And if one takes the lessons from the greatest teachers and the greatest activists in history, there is much to be learned. And as Ruth Bader Ginsburg offered, be the movement that other people want to follow. Be the movement that other people want to take as an example. And at least is a paraphrase. Well, Pop, I started to jump to it. This is, of course, news my dad. We try to talk about the important stuff. Sometimes we talk about the unimportant stuff. We take turns. Dad typically takes the first turn. He took the first turn with his shout-out, Dad. Amy Coney.
1: I, I, I also i want I want to acknowledge the passing of Joe. We're Morgan. going
0: to need an intro for that because that's not in the the challenge. We have is we keep stepping on each other because it's not in the document. So we're going to, need to do something to get that in the thing so that I keep I don't step on you. If We want to add a segment. I'm all good with it. I just need to figure out how to actually do the show. But go ahead, Pop.
1: I want to acknowledge the passing of Joe Morgan, the great infielder who has also became a a really really good commentator. Died in seventy seven. And the passing of John McCain's mother, Roberta McCain, who made it to 108. Wow. And then everybody should know that today is global hand-washing day. So you're supposed to wash your hands today. I'd like to know who it is that creates these days. Who in the heck came up with global hand-washing day? But anyway, wash your
0: hands. Well, I'll take a crack at it. Anybody who wants to, really. My uh, a good friend of mine, who actually now works in D.C., who was uh, economic advisor for John Kitsar, his name is Scott Nelson. Uh, he was, uh, was it Dick Durbin? He was the, uh, uh, was it Dick Durbin? Was it? No, it was somebody else. Uh, Byron Dorgan, Byron Dorgan. He, he was chief of staff briefly to Byron Dorgan in the U.S. Senate. Uh, and, but he's a Corvallis kid. He started National Corn Dog Day. So it turns out you know, all you have to do is if you just do it. Okay, and you get some other people to do it and then you take a few pictures and you do the day and if you can get somebody to cover it, if you can get somebody to say, "Oh, look, it's the day." Then it turns out it's the day. And I think this is what the greeting card companies learned that there's no congressional committee for the day, right? You could just like start the day. You could have one that made by a congressional committee, but you can also just start it. You can also just do it by the Graham. All right. Well, maybe right. we we maybe should start starting some doing some days. What do you want what what should be the day? <laughs>
1: Uh, well how about how about having a day to make sure that kxry also known as x on fm continues to do the wonderful work that it does and we're going to be starting our fundraising drive next week and we maybe should have a day for that
0: i'm telling you that here's here's my idea my idea is i think we should do a i think we should have a news of my dad werewolf game do people know the game werewolf or the game mafia is a very fun game it is it is uh, my family's favorite larger game, right? Where you can play with more than four or five people, right? You can play with a dozen. Heck, I've, the largest group I think I've played with is like 30. And I think we should play a, uh, I think we should have a werewolf because werewolf is one of the games you can play without, you know, on a screen, without giving people a communicable disease. And so people who, you know, up their membership or give her a little bit, like we should we should have people who, who shout out news of my dad when they give during the drive. Uh, I think we could have a fun time. It was really fun doing the uh, doing the Zoom with Marcy and the crew on uh, uh, when we did that during the last, You know, what was that? Several months ago. Really enjoyed doing that Zoom, and we want to do that again. And we could do one that's just like a, a hey howdy. We, if people want, and this is why we're doing it in advance of the drive is to get feedback. If our if our loyal news with my dad family. Wants to? I, I said you're loyal. It's up to you to decide if you're loyal. I'll just call you the news by dad family. If you would like, if you want to do a ballot rundown, we could do a ballot rundown. That's one thing we could do. Another thing we could do is a game of werewolf. They're not mutually exclusive, but we'd need it would need to have interest in order to want to do and in order for it to be worth. It was just dad and I doing it. It's obviously not worth doing. Some of the votes we got a text in. Uh, Joe Pesci votes at the McDonald's drive thru drop box in the Hollywood district that is an Joe that's an excellent place for Joe Pesci to uh, vote and yeah there's McDonald's has McDonald's has like drop boxes now the Republican Party in California has drop boxes now that are unsanctioned and they won't take them away pop Amy, Amy Coney Barrett who I keep wanting to call Amy Kobe Bryant Amy Coney Barrett Law professor, judge, newest court of appeals for the Seventh Circuit, nominated by Trump to fill the seat held by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I did not say fill the shoes. Uh, Republicans praised Barrett's nomination, calling her unashamedly pro-life, embracing her faith without apologies. Not the faith; that's the concern. They did a really interesting move there that, that I want to talk about. Dad, any reflections already? Well, I guess already we're about to be done. It's about too, too late for me. I have a. Go ahead. I
1: have a title I would like to give her, which I confess. I will steal from Charles Dickens. I,
0: I hope it's I hope it's okay. What, what, well, Charles Dickens always makes you know, me a little nervous. Makes, Dickens, makes a little nervous.
1: Charles Dickens is not going to say anything that is bleepable. It is the artful dodger. Aha! Uh-huh. She was an art. She was a very, very artful dodger. She. Uh, <laughs> and at some point, at some point, the United States Senate has got to call a halt to this crap that has become the custom for Supreme Court nominees to refuse to express opinions on things sometimes by saying they don't have one which is which means that they are either idiots or liars just, just an example she said that she didn't have a strong opinion, she didn't have an opinion on global warming. If she doesn't have an opinion on global warming, it, if she says that, means she's either an idiot and isn't paying attention, or she's lying. She, uh, it, just, it just drives me crazy that they let them get away with this. I have no firm view on climate change, she said. She was willing to say that Brown versus the Board was correctly decided, but she was, was not willing to say that Griswold v. Connecticut was correctly decided. She was not willing to decide that the, the oh, oh, however over, over however is pronounced, you know, the, on on uh, marriage was right. And, of course, she keeps saying that she is a strict constitutionalist. They say, I wonder if it was to be a strict constitutionalist. And if you are a strict constitutionalist, which means you not only look to the, if it isn't in the Constitution, maybe it doesn't exist, and particularly you need to know what the status of the opinions of the framers were when they wrote the Constitution, I don't think anybody can question can question the notion that the framers of the constitution had they been asked is marriage between a person whose parents whose ancestors lived in africa marrying a person whose ancestors came from europe they would have said no the constitution does not say that you have a right to do that and which is is pretty 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 scary she denies she she denies knowing that DDT had promised his appointees to the Supreme Court would get rid of the ACA and would get rid of Roe. Again, either she is not paying attention to what's going on in the world, or she's lying. And, and they've just got to quit letting them get get away with this. And in 2016. On CBS, I watched the clip on CBS so I can say I've heard her. She said there should be no confirmation of the Obama nomination for the Supreme Court because it was an election year, and this is the best part because replacing someone like Scalia, who had very clear views, with somebody who might have very different views, shouldn't happen before the presidential election, and you could not have a better example of a huge shift from a person who has one set of views to a person who has another set of views than appointing her to replace Justice Ginsburg. No, no sense of the, hypocr- the hypocrisy. The, the thing that scares me about her refusal to say she believed Obergefell was correctly Obergefell was correctly decided, is that suggesting me she does not believe there is anywhere in the Constitution implied a right to privacy and that is that is really, really, really major and we should all be very concerned about that.
0: The move is count the votes first and don't lose the votes. The move is I can't share my opinions despite, despite the fact that those are opinions are precisely why I was appointed. So somebody used to work for me back in the day, Alex Aronson, wonderful wonderful guy who went off to Stanford Law School uh, and now works for Sheldon Whitehouse. You've seen him on your screen during this. He is uh, a senior aide now to Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and is uh, done some of the prep. A lot of the lot of the prep you've seen for White House's questions. And when you've seen White House do an excellent job with his questions, it's partly because he's a really smart guy, and partly because he has great staff, including Alex Aronson. Uh, and Alex told me was it, I guess it was late last year, earlier this year. We we don't speak all the time. We had a chance to, which was really great. And and he said now they've released, you know, two hundred fifty million dollars. Uh, that have been spent on the uh, spent on the confirmation that they went and did the research of the unprecedented expenditure, the unprecedented propaganda efforts, the unprecedented lobbying support, the unprecedented public education, if I can use that term maybe with air quotes, uh, the unprecedented force of power invested almost entirely by the Koch brothers to Transform the American judiciary, and what they figured out, and we know this: we figured out is count the votes first. You don't you don't start until you count the votes. This is not play principle. This is play power. Don't figure out. It's not a discussion about what the law should be. It will only masquerades as that. It is not a discussion about who should be appointed and who shouldn't be appointed. It is only It only masquerades as that. This game is count the votes first. And don't lose the votes. And the way you don't lose the votes is the only thing you do is try to call somebody a whiner for saying, well, why won't you answer a question? Why won't you say anything? I hear you, Dad. How you stop it is a really good question. Ultimately, I think the way you stop it is by transforming the Supreme Court. And first, that means you have to transform the U.S. Senate. And that means you have to continue an onward march towards transforming voting rules or keeping them from being transformed so you actually have a democracy I think that's where we're at dad because what
1: what what oh, what the last two days before that committee were there was nothing but theater
0: we got it we got a text in asking to discuss uh, uh, Kamala Harris's approach during the hearings do you have any any feedback on that
1: yeah well what she she used that to uh, yeah it was theater a very good theater she used that to campaign to raise awareness of the threat to the ACA to Obamacare, and she and she did it very well, and she also raised the awareness of the threat to Roe versus Wade, and she did that very well, and it of course didn't change any minds, but but I thought I thought she she did it in a measured way, in a kind way, and not not. Uh, not confrontational, but uh, articulate, and it was very—I thought it was very good.
0: Let me say—I think the Supreme Court has lost all legitimacy. I just said it. There's been this question: Oh, do you think? Do you think the Supreme Court is losing legitimacy? Do you do you think there's a risk that if blank happens, it risks impacting the court's legitimacy? Let me say this right now: If the legitimacy of the court is based upon an unvarnished analysis of the good and a not Pre-weighted, predetermined, a, a you know, sort of political uh, thrust of what the uh, of what judicial sh- decision should be. If the definition of legitimacy is something that is nonpartisan, the Supreme Court is not legitimate. If you view the le- if you view the Supreme Court as a lifetime mini legislature, except that it's an Uber legislature. And if you think that you agree with its views, then you can deem it as legitimate. But part of the challenge with that is the modern movement to transform the judiciary was built upon a foundation, built upon an argument of saying it shouldn't be a little legislature. It should be an unvarnished, nonpartisan view at the law. And that is not what it is right now. This thing is bought and paid for. Sorry if I'm a little bit grumpy. Uh, Dad, the Supreme. Well, we're
1: talking about the court. Uh, this might be a good time to just mention that they decided that the census does not have to does not have to continue to the thirty first. Which means that if you have not filed your census information by the end of the day tomorrow, you will not be counted.
0: We got a, got a got an email in actually from Patricia. Thank you, Patricia. If you want to email me, by the way, my email address is Jefferson Smith at Gmail. I should probably create a actually the better one to use, you know what I should use? I should use my x-ray address, which is uh, is it it's Jefferson at x ray.fm. Yeah, I think it's Jefferson X-ray.fm. You can uh, you can email me at Jefferson at x-ray.fm. As I was impressed by Sheldon Whitehouse's testimony. Hey, we just talked about him. Uh, centering on dark money cases because I thought it followed up on the questions you and your dad suggested be asked of Judge Barrett. Uh, As he talked to her, I realized I had little knowledge of the details. He said 80 cases fell into four categories. Cases that protected dark money in politics. Cases that weakened, undermined, and discredited the impact of civil juries. Cases that weakened regulatory agencies. Cases which limit and exclude access to voting. So when when she said, could you educate your, your listeners on the role of dark money and the, and explain the whirlwind presentation of Senator Whitehouse? I'm so glad that you asked this question. This is what I started to talk about. This is what my friend Alex Aronson has been working on for the last several years. But yeah, first of all, it's it's to connect the money that is fueling the uh, connect the money that is fueling this effort in the courts. Okay, and then it's also to track the decision because part of the challenge, right, is for years we've been saying, oh yeah, there's a there's a rise to conservative judiciary. Well, what do you mean? Right. What do you mean by that? And so you have to start categorizing that to define what that means. If it doesn't mean just like Roe versus Wade, because that doesn't come up every time. What are we talking about? Now I remember years ago. In fact, before I was in law school, when Zach Klonowski was named. Wow, I'm connecting all the dots this morning. So our previous guest mentioned Zach Klinowski. The reason I know him is his dad was James Klonowski, my professor at University of Oregon. James Klonowski wrote me the lion recommendation that helped me get into Harvard Law School, and who was and who I, who, I took all of his classes, and the and we ended up becoming. Uh, I think it's fair to say friends. And the uh, and what and very he, good friend with his spouse, yeah, his his spouse a federal judge, and he was a wonderful guy, and his one of his sons uh, one of his sons worked for me back in the day. Uh, and when uh, and we read and I read something there, and the way they try to do it, it's like, well, if you look at cases that advocate for the protection of property and that's what they tried to do but it wasn't it, it wasn't it didn't jump off the page it certainly didn't have cable news teaching about it It was sort of hard you know the right wing had moved pretty hard to be able to say oh what does liberal judging mean well, liber- brown versus board of education roe versus way don't have to go further we can communicate to our entire movement our entire apparatus what an activist judge means, what a liberal judge means, uh, what a derelict judge means, just by saying uh, Brown versus Board of Education, whispering that one, you got to whisper that one, and Roe versus Wade. It's been harder when trying to help people understand the rebirth of the Lochner era, the rebirth of an overwinning right wing, and they have been deeply strategic in doing it. And some of that is by you don't you don't spend. When, when, uh, the question came uh, could you exp- uh, explain the dark money because it's different than election campaigns different than a political campaign where you donate to act blue and donate to the candidate of your choice the way you do this is by fueling nonprofit organizations and fueling principally of course the federalist society to go in and start identifying judges and lay out what are the cases that indicate that they will do precisely what you want them to do before they get appointed? How do you put together the right conferences and invite the right people to those conferences so that you can make sure that you reinforce those ideas and test for who shares those ideas? How do you ingrain those not only principles, but also ingrain those specific objectives, including Making sure you can have unprecedented, unfettered, unknown dark money in politics. That's basically Citizens United and its progeny. That is uh, trying to weaken the jury system. Anything that smacks of democracy, anything that is power for people as distinct from power for property oligarchy itself, weakening those things. Those are cases that make it harder for a regulatory agency to do its job. The EPA, the FDA, the FCC, etc., cetera, the SEC. Uh, that, uh, that also, of course, impacts, yes, the, the makeup of cabinets, trying to turn those over to the foxes so that the foxes guard the hen houses. And yes, to limit and exclude access to voting? How do you make sure that democracy is not primary, that, in fact, you can make it harder, you can suppress the vote, you can district based on partisan ideals rather than communities of interest, rather than geography, rather than trying to generate a democracy that makes sense? This one, is the one, move.
1: Some, one, one obvious example in just the last few days where the court decided that if a state says... You have to have somebody uh, testify that they saw you vote when you send, if you have a mailed-in ballot, you got, you, got, you got to have that, do that in front of somebody, which just makes it that much more difficult to vote. That's okay.
0: I'll give you another one. I'll give you another example, which just did happen, Pop. Did you say this already? The Trump administration is going to end counting for the census early? Yes, and,
1: I did that. And, That's and why I, I say it. So you, 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 better, you better go online and get your census in by the end of the day tomorrow, or you ain't
0: going to be counted. And it, is, it is ridiculous that they're ending the census counting. The only reason they're ending the census counting, because why does it matter to end early? Well, do you? because the people who are hard to count are exactly the people you have to count. The people who didn't immediately respond to the... Uh, people who didn't immediately respond to the census question those are the reason why those are the people why you have to continue going until you reach them ending the count early is not quite as bad as not doing the count at all but it borders on that and trying to illegitimize the census trying to make sure that there isn't a change in representation that actually reflects where human beings are living this is much of the move and they've known it the battle here folks is not right versus left that's not what we're talking about the engagement the 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 discussion that is joined is a discussion around democracy is how do we make sure that the people are in charge how do we make sure that it is the greatest good not only for the greatest number but by the greatest number How do you make sure that it is of the people, for the people, by the people? That's what is at stake. How do you have a set of systems that are designed so the primacy comes from humanity?
1: May may I compliment you?
0: Yeah, you like how I emphasize the people rather than the of. You
1: got you got it right.
0: This is how Dad is totally right. By the way, this is something if we're going to create. Dad and I had a conversation about religion last night. Someday maybe we'll do a conversation on religion when other people can join in because I'm realizing that that neither Dad nor I are going to live forever. And if 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 chemistry, if biology, if physics act as they normally do, dad might not live as long as I do. Well, he might live more years, but maybe not more years from now. And that means that we got to soak up all the wisdom we can. And that means I've got it. I want to come up with segments that actually do soak up that wisdom, dad, that aren't just the day to day news, but are like your best, hottest you know deepest takes and best reflections stuff you've been holding on to or repeating for years i want to make sure that we have that for our listeners and have that for posterity but here's one of them dad and rather than me stealing the thunder you should explain what you mean by the why you complimented me
1: because you said of the people by the people and for the people which is what Lincoln said. He was not emphasizing of, by, and for. He was emphasizing people, that that is the difference. We had a government that was not the government of the king, was not the government of the oligarchs, not the, governor, not the government of even a Roman Senate, but we had a government of the people, by
0: the people, for the people. And not of and by and for the prepositions. It, in fact, was by and for and of the human beings well we got a couple texts in wouldn't it be more legitimate if we voted for supreme court seats this is the thing what justifies lifetime appointments is the idea that it is not merely a political enterprise now there can be certain and it's even stripping away our idea that well maybe Oh, there's non-political. Even there's this new News Nation. There's new news channel. Well, it's not going to be a political news channel. Well, is that possible? You can. I believe. I I believe it's more of a spectrum, right? It's impossible to entirely strip values away. It's entirely. It, it's you, you can't entirely strip away some basic beliefs. But yeah, the more political the Supreme Court is, the more argument there is for not having lifetime appointments and changing how they're picked. That's of what's all, at stake.
1: of all the of all the proposals for doing something with the court, the one that I find most appealing. I find it really appealing to have an 18 year term limit with one to be appointed by every every president so so that so you would have what one just automatically appointing especially if you allowed the president to reappoint someone whose term was expiring, so if you had somebody who really was a great jurist and really was even-handed and uh, really did have an institutional memory that would be a shame to lose, you could keep it, but there would be no stigma if, uh, if you just did your 18 years and went off into the sunset.
0: And you would maintain your status as an Article Three judge. You would be cycled to be a Circuit Court judge. Exactly. So it doesn't take away lifetime appointments. It maintains lifetime appointments, but the panel changes ever so slightly. So we are not creating uh, a hugely dark money-funded set of elected kings and queens. Dad, we got one other question I want to deal with. That is, uh, how do you play Werewolf? Well, I won't go through all the rules. Basically, you play. Like Mafia, it's sort of similar. Everybody gets together and your village, everybody's a villager. Okay, but some number of people have been given status as werewolves, okay? And their job is to eat the villagers. And so at night, and night when how night happens everybody closes their eyes, at night the werewolves well,
1: you, you also need to mention that that the villagers, but some of the villagers also have special titles like being mayor. Wait, wait, wait.
0: step by step, pop. Step by step. Okay. Step by step. So at night, the werewolves wake up and the werewolves select someone they're going to eat. And then the town wakes up and that person is eliminated from the game. As Dad just said, there're also some of the villagers who have special roles. And that includes somebody who can investigate the rest of the village to see who the werewolves might be. That includes Someone who can uh someone who can heal somebody who has in fact been eaten by the werewolves. And so you and the goal of the villagers is to find out who the werewolves are before the werewolves eliminate the town. That's how to play.
1: Before I dive into COVID, would it be okay just because I there's a bunch of international stuff I think is worth mentioning. Could I just laundry list my international and then we would talk about the virus? Apparently. International laundry list. The United Kingdom is having challenges, and this is actually related to COVID, but North Ireland and Wales are disagreeing with Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, over how it should be handled. The G20 nations have agreed to allow poor countries to suspend their debt payments for another six months, to suspend up until... June so they can spend more money on addressing the problems of the virus all related to COVID of course Germany has decided to give 662 million dollars to the remaining Holocaust survivors estimated at being 240,000 I had no idea about 240,000 folks who were stained by the Holocaust are still alive most of them in North America Russia, Israel, and the U.S., and of those in the U.S., half of them live in Brooklyn. They're going to give them all $1,400 twice in the next couple of years. Pope Francis is clearly serious about house cleaning. The Vatican has issued an arrest warrant for Cecilia Maragona, who is known as the cardinal's lady, charging her with embezzlement of Vatican funds. The EU is sanctioning six Russians in the inner circle, Putin's inner circle, over the Novotny poisoning, also sanctioning a big research institute in Russia, and the UK is having to address the problem of, as Brexit Brexit takes effect, the trucks that go back and forth and the channel which have been able to go back and forth for all these many years as Britain was part of the EU without stopping now are going to have to stop to be searched and to be vetted meaning thousands of trucks coming across every day and so the result of this is land is being taken on the British side of the channel And some of the folks who voted for Brexit are realizing maybe that wasn't such a good idea after all.
0: Well, Dad, let's get... I don't know if there was anything you wanted to talk about in there, but let us get to... uh, But let us get then to COVID. Here's something we know. We know that unemployment claims are back spiking, 898,000 of them. That's almost a million. That gets us back to the highest level since August. Uh, September had been a little bit different, but it looks like now our... Uh, Now our spike, now our unemployment, new claims is back on the rise. What are you tracking on COVID stuff, Bob?
1: Well, something that I think is, is revealed the last 24 hours, which further further demonstrates the absolute perfidy, the perfidy, the perfidy of DDT and his minions. Turns out that Kudlow and his and his folks in private briefings of investors in February were telling investors, watch out for the virus, which resulted in a memo that was circulated widely that said, short everything because this virus is going to be bad. This was absolutely contemporaneously, virtually on the same days that Kudlow and those folks were telling people, don't worry, nothing to worry about, nothing to worry about, But those big money investors, ho ho, they win short.
0: We also know that there is not yet a deal on COVID relief money, uh, and And what. Mnuchin
1: says there probably won't be one before the election. uh,
0: The there is big difference between what they want to do. There is, of course, they already were able to pass their. Uh, huge giveaway to large businesses in the last package in addition to the direct support for human beings uh, and, and, I do, and I don't just mean, I'm not talking about the PPP money and I'm not talking about 1200 bucks, and I'm not talking about unemployment benefits uh, so there is not only, a lot of the debate will be what's the size, what's the scale, how, how big is the package uh, McConnell started a package of zero but it isn't only what that number is. It is also where, what is where the money goes. And
1: that's that's the big difference. You know, where everybody says, well, now the house says they're willing to do 2.2. The minutia says you're willing 1.8. Why don't they just say 2.0 and it's done. But that's not the problem. It's where the money goes.
0: Uh, I want to get into endorsements and discussion on some of the ballot measures that are before us on this ballot. Anything else on COVID you want to do before I do that? Well,
1: let me just let me just quickly launder list some the uh, the the, the, trend, the trend the trend is up more than down on cases worldwide. The DDT campaign quoting Fauci dishonestly on Fauci is actually fighting back, speaking back and saying they shouldn't do that and don't do it again. Oregon, the daily average for the last week went up to 361, which is a record. Women are being hit hardest in the loss of jobs from it. The vaccine studies have been paused, which gives me encouragement that the vaccine studies are really going to be honest studies. And that's really important because polls polls as to who's going to take the vaccine, very ominous. 48% of Americans generally, but only 22% of African Americans are saying, yeah, they they for sure will take the the vaccine. And and the White House apparently is really serious about saying, well, we're just going to have herd immunity, which means at least 70% of the Americans have to catch it, and then that will take it. The... uh, Side effect, rents are going down. Rents in San Francisco have gone down between 21 and 31 percent because of it. Just all kinds of side related to the virus. But you're right; we ought to talk about elections and maybe a little bit about state and local. Since uh, it's state, and local.
0: no, that's where I want to. That's where I want to get to. I want to okay, talk. let Do it. So you don't have. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to do it. You let me. You let me write. There's in dancing. Very often what happens is one person leads the dance and the other person follows the dance. And if they do that, sometimes they can dance just beautifully. Everybody's coming out. News organizations are coming out with their endorsements. They're coming out with their candidate endorsements and their ballot measure endorsements. And I've been getting some calls and texts about, hey, is there anything worth voting no on? What makes that interesting is usually for years you had a rise to the right wing and in ballot initiatives in Oregon and you'd look at all that stuff and it was basically something that was designed to undercut labor unions, uh, ban same sex marriage, etc. The ballot this year is different. You have a bunch of stuff that a lot of friends of this show like a bunch of that stuff. And the question came, is there anything voting no on Dad, I wanted to start by posing that question to you. I don't know if you voted yet, and you don't have to divulge every way you're going to vote, but is there anything on there that you think is particularly arguable? i got a couple that I think are arguable, uh, but what do you think?
1: Well, I think think there's more than one that are arguable, and I will confess that I filled out my ballot last night for everything except for for some local water districts that I realize I've got to go back and reread the voters' pamphlet in deciding who I'm going to vote for for those districts. The, the 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 tax measures the transportation tax i think that's something that can legitimately be be uh, argued over i think partly just because when the economy is in real trouble because of the coronavirus it, it, is that a, a really good time to impose a new tax and the, of course, others will say, "Well, by imposing the tax, you use the money to put people to work, and so that might be a good thing." But anyhow, that's what I think. Also, the library measure—I'm a great supporter of libraries—but again, is—is is this a good time to be raising a tax? Uh, legitimate question. What are
0: your thoughts? Here's one: the campaign finance measure. I think it's a winner. I am I would entertain someone's text if they had one. There are real questions about what those limits ought to be. That's gonna be the hard part. That's gonna be coming up in the legislature. And in fact, a bunch of the people got engaged in the campaign to pass this. Not the people who initiated. The people who initially initiated are die in the old I'm one of them. Die in the world campaign finance reform advocates. But some of the people got involved in the campaign did it as they said, so they could be at the table to shape what the statute would be. And that discussion is going to happen in the next legislative session. That discussion might end up happening even on the ballot again if that money can be put together and if there isn't a good enough bill brought forth in the legislature. But the... Uh, and that's going to be a big discussion, but that discussion has to at least happen. So that one seems sort of an easy one. The uh, psilocybin, Dad, how are, you about, how are you feeling about shroom oil?
1: Well, that... Uh, there, there have been there have been some uh, some cogent things published uh, warning about it, but but I am I am generally in favor of decriminalizing decriminalizing the ingestion of anything because uh, if, if we we had we are still suffering from the organized crime that grew out of prohibition just about all organized crime in America started with prohibition and when you when you say there are things that you are not allowed to ingest that's a problem
0: the other and that's a perfect segue to the other one i think that one's a a pretty easy one right i think if you're a if that's not that is not the harder of the two measures regarding uh legalization or decriminalization of drugs. The harder one is Measure one ten, which would decriminalize nearly essentially all drugs. And the it would decriminalize most drugs, downgrade most possession charges to a hundred dollar fine instead of possible jail time. And that is that is a more arguable one. That's that's tricky. That's the one that Mark Zuckerberg came and and donated to this is a big step, Dad, in your direction. This is a larger step. This isn't just marijuana. This isn't just micro dosing of psilocybin. Uh, this is, you know, pretty much drugs. And and that's one that I could imagine being more arguable with folks. I could would love to hear people's thoughts on that.
1: And, and the problem, of course, is is that, is that when you decriminalize something, that which is a euphemism for, for making it okay, saying it's no longer illegal, or, or it's less illegal, yet it, it encourages some people to think, well, so, oh, then it must be okay. And I I am personally absolutely opposed to the ingestion of heroin, or the ingestion of cocaine, or even I, I am opposed to the ingestion of, mar- of marijuana for recreational purposes. Uh, and And I can say that I have never done any of them, so I am not a hypocrite in that regard. Indeed, I think I, I confess to think that, that the world would probably, on balance, be better off if it had no hard liquor. And again, I am not imbibed hard liquor. But just because it is legal doesn't mean that it's good, and we have to separate those two out.
0: And to be clear, I think the number of people who think that someone's life should be ruined and over because they get addicted to a substance—that's absurd. At the same time, it does get me. It's also a good segue to another one. But yeah, not only is that signal sending a piece that a legitimate piece of the debate, but also how do we get folks into treatment? How do we help people get off addiction? And, the, and a court saying, hey, you need to go into treatment is one of those methods. If it's not going to be that, then what I would like to see is much larger public education resources in schools and in the media to make sure that people have not only access, but who are persuaded to get access to treatment services because the challenge with particularly addictive drugs is eventually it's not an issue of freedom, it's an issue of having lost your freedom to the substance. If somebody wants you guys to hide and bother me, but if they have it, if they can't keep themselves from getting high, that bothers them. And it bothers everybody who cares about them. And it bothers the community who is trying to take care of itself and one another. This one, Dad, gets a little trickier. We had Street Roots on uh, yesterday and they went through theirs and they voted. And, th- and this is a disagreement that I have with them. Uh, but they uh, endorsed no on raising tobacco taxes. Uh, what's your take, Dad, on tobacco taxes?
1: Well, I will confess that uh, I, I have voted for every increase in the tobacco ta- tobacco tax, and yesterday was not an exception.
0: Their argument is that it's uh, it's an inc- a tax increase on smokers and smokers are disproportionately poor people. And doing that at a stressful time is not a, a good time to do it. My and I wrestled it, I, I wrestled with this one a little bit, but here are the facts that here, here's my counter. Here's one. So the first is philosophical. That if it is an issue of freedom, the taxation of cigarettes, my beef with nicotine, not the person who takes it, but my beef with nicotine is that it saps someone's freedom. It becomes the thing that is in charge. It is not about an exercise of liberty and choice of the people who does it because, in fact, that substance removes one's ability to choose the way we would normally define that term. S- second, I, I have Se- another
1: comment. The, the reason for for where I where I am on tobacco, anything that tends to discourage people from smoking, I, I I'm likely to favor because smoking is something that really does affect innocent people. It really does affect the non-smoker, and this was brought home to me just in the last two weeks, where one of my dearest friends who lives a a, a mysterious life in relation to what he ingests, has been diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. And why? Because both of his parents were heavy smokers, and so he grew up in a household where he was breathing secondhand smoke all the time, and people who smoke can affect anybody close to them. And so, so they're where I am.
0: The other fact that is persuasive to me is we do know that there is an elasticity of demand for tobacco products, that when the price of tobacco products goes up, people who smoke smoke some less, which probably saves them some life and reduces some of that secondhand smoke infliction and reduces young smokers in particular, including people from starting it or people who haven't yet or are becoming habituated, that there is price sensitivity in tobacco, so says the research. When I read that research, that was, I must acknowledge, impactful, persuasive to me. The universal preschool measure, Dad, any concern that universal preschool tax is too expensive for folks? It'll drive our rich Portlanders to live to Beaver move to Beaverton and Lake Oswego?
1: I I am skeptical that anybody is going to give up the home in which they live and which they love being in. Are going to move because they because the taxes is not going to hit them that hard. I'm skept, I'm skept, skeptical about that, uh, and where we're around the country when things like this have happened, I think the data pretty much supports my skepticism. But I am open to being shown data that shows otherwise.
0: The data I've seen, and it's actually a really good segue from, we're doing this in exactly the order. See, if we dance together and telling you, we're just going to dance beautifully. That in terms of elasticity of demand, there is pretty significant price elasticity of demand for tobacco products. Not infinite, though, right? You know, it's not you raise the price of tobacco and then someone's not addicted anymore, but there is some elasticity, particularly among young smokers. With homes, there is in fact less elasticity that, that with taxing for instance an increase in taxation in an area does not immediately trigger someone to move away there is some elasticity there's some shift of where someone wants to live based on the expense of taxes but it turns out the benefits of a place impact a living choice more than the cost of living in that place that more people in fact will live it Portland's become more expensive but it hasn't meant that fewer people have wanted to move here people focus on benefits more than costs when it comes to living and that means also when there's like uh oh there's more expensive taxes in Portland that not everybody moves to Vancouver now that should not be overstated there are people who move Vancouver particularly in the following instance and it's not about income tax and it's not about you know some annual tax, and it's not about sales tax. It is about capital gains tax. That because it's such a significant event, if someone shares it right now, because there is uh, no capital gains tax in Washington, that if when someone is selling their company, and this has happened now to multiple friends of mine, when somebody sells their company, it or takes their stock options. They can be advised and typically are advised by a tax professional. You know what? If you get a residence in Vancouver, Washington or in Stevenson, Washington, you can avoid all of that capital gains event. And so also applause to those people who maintain their Portland residence, even when they are selling New Seasons Market. And that is what Brian Roeder and I Brady did was they stayed in town. I appreciate that. Uh, and but some people, you know, decide to hop over the river. But generally speaking, there isn't it, you know, an increase in tax doesn't get people Fleeing away. I do think having really great preschools that are free, having really great schools in general, probably increases the desire for people to stay. And if you do both things, if maybe there's an increase and a decrease in demand, maybe that helps stabilize pricing. But that's going to go further into economics than I'm prepared to go into this morning. Other one is the police oversight. Dad, you have any questions about the new system of police oversight? This is ballot measure 26-217.
1: The uh, I, if I had been able if I had been able to play emperor and write it myself, I, it was not the way I would write it. But but the fact but we got to do something, and this is the only something we have.
0: What would you have done differently?
1: Well, I would I would have instead of passing the buck, which the which this does to to a fairly significant extent, passing the buck as to what exactly is going to be happening. I would have mandated, mandated a powerful civilian review board, which had subpoena power.
0: Oh, it does. What? It does.
1: Well, I, I, I I would have made it a little more specific, I think, but, 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 but it's, but, but on balance, I think it's, it's, it's a good bill.
0: Yeah, the last the last poll. This one is uh, uh, yeah no the, the key powers it's got. This is a joint Hardisty uh, and
1: I, I I predict it's going to be in the in, in, at least in the mid 60s and maybe higher.
0: And that's actually the question that's going on right now. The discussion that's happening right now is whether that uh, you know how the campaign pushes to get it from a win to a mandate and what's the and what's that what's that delta right what what point is something just a win versus when is uh, when is something a mandate? We got a text in shame on street Roots for coming out against a tobacco tax. Uh, oh, the new water measure is, behind, is perhaps the hardest to understand. All right, here's what we're going to do. We didn't get a, we didn't get, we, I didn't prep on the water measure, but why don't we get that on the, on our docket for Monday? Or we'll talk about that. Dad, uh, any other, those are the key ones I wanted to go, through today. Anything else on local news you want to make sure we cover?
1: Well, on local news, things that uh, I think are just worth mentioning is that uh, be, it's, it's sports, but it's kind of significant. We're not going to get the women's final four in 25 or 26, apparently, in, at least in part, because of what the folks have been doing at, after 11 o'clock to downtown Portland the uh, an interesting proposal, I think maybe you should get Charlene McGee to come on and tell us more about it, an idea for having bike, bicycle prescriptions, particularly for African Americans to, to give them a prescription, giving them right to use the, the, free, the bikes for free that are around. That is kind of interesting. The, uh, well, something I, 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 I'm a little troubled with the story that the state has agreed to pay $2.7 million to the family of an inmate who died because he wasn't treated for the flu, a bipolar inmate. and, and I, I am always troubled by how how a lot of money to a family does anything for the person who died. But $2.7 million strikes me as kind, kind of a lot of money. Casinos, Casinos, the Siletz tribe looking at putting a casino in North Salem, which so the Grand Ronde tribe has decided. Well, maybe they will put a casino on the old Greyhound track. After all, of course you know how I feel about casinos. I'm sorry about that. And an interesting thing: the Ted Wheeler's campaign is suing Mary Hall Caballero over her the auditor's ruling on their improper money raising which puts the city attorney Tracy Reeve in a really difficult spot because he is supposed to represent both of them and that's something that I think the city charter ought to take a look at that maybe those two somehow should be given independent counsel
0: Dad, I wanted to go over a little bit the portland Otter at least mentioned that they have noted some improvement on the city's handling of the tobacco tax it came out come out in may 2019 going after the handling of that cannabis tax including saying that 80 percent of the money was going essentially the police bureau to public safety now there has been some shift of that and i wanted to cover just very very briefly that there was a metro candidates debate last night mary nolan and chris smith pop what was your reflection of that
1: well, I I was because uh, I was commandeered to participate in a training session.
0: Oh, that's right. You were gonna watch it, but then you didn't. But instead, we right. yeah. That, that forgive so me. All forgive I've me. done
1: is read the story about it, I have read the story about it, which I, which, uh, um, well, that that's where I am.
0: So Mary Nolan, Chris Smith running for Metro, and the and the disagreement. One of the bigger disagreements: Mary Nolan got some money, not a huge amount of money, but some money from a gas firm that uh, that fracked, uses fracked gas. And Mary Nolan says it's an unfair attack because it's not that much money, and you're and you're beating up on me unfairly. And we both think that climate change is real, and we both care about the climate. There is in there, though, in Christmas. Yeah, but I didn't lie. I I said that you got money from a fracked gas company, and that's what you do. Here's the thing that I the dynamic that I am watching for, which is where will they? I mean, that some of the support for Mary Nolan is based on the fact that she does, in fact, have electoral accomplishments. She was the uh, majority leader in the caucus leader in the Oregon House. Uh, She has served in elected office in uh, and has led large nonprofit organization, uh, and she is very accomplished. And some people well, oh, that's, that's a great track record, It's a strong argument to vote for. The, uh, a counter that somebody else could look at the same facts and say, ah, yeah, but she's a little bit part of the establishment, and she is more likely than Chris Smith to go along and get along with the standards sort or of anti-climate development forces that have plagued the United States and the world for the last decades and that and that is not limited to one political party to be very sure and you can read polluted by money the series by uh, the, the series by the Oregonian last year which won an award it was in 2018 uh, that won maybe it was 2018 that won a uh, uh, that, that won some pretty significant journalism awards and I and I will say it's a series I really appreciate we've basically made the case that Oregon has lost its position as an environmental leader its reputation built in the 1970s it's not living up to their reputation, not even close and that is directly linked to the fact that we have no limits on campaign contributions of course, there is now a limits thing on the ballot right now. Uh, and I think that the i think there is some delta between chris smith and mary nolan on that but it is not it is not a chasm or at least i I, let me say this rather than just that watching for that delta i think is the thing that is worth watching for even though that fracking debate is about a, a contribution from one entity that could be overblown the discussion of uh, what they stand for and what their contributions indicate, I think that is important. And if we have a chance to talk to Chris Smith and Mary Nolan again, we should do that. Uh, we have of course had a chance to interview both of them. Well Bob, I think it is time are you going to stick around yeah, to I'd, talk I'd to like Dr. Reyes? Like to, I'd
1: like to stick I'd like to stick around for, for our next guest because partly because I was the one who got our next guest and I'm looking forward to what he has to say.
0: You want to inter you want to introduce you want to introduce the segment, no, Dad you, you want to say go because
1: you you got the you do a better job than I do. Well, uh,
0: John, you want us to take a break? You want us to go straight to it? All right. I think I, I got a wave, and I think that wave is go straight to it. Okay. There is a debate about nuclear power. That go that debate goes back to ever since nuclear power started. And every every time there is a plant meltdown, the power the, the the debate over how we should get our power went up. Every time they started to build a new one, debate over whether we should get nuclear power invest nuclear power went up joining us now is dr jose reyes the chief technology officer and co-founder of new scale power he was also head of the department of nuclear engineering and radiation health physics at oregon state and he's telling us here about small nuclear power plants and what benefits those might have and maybe taking some questions from you dr reyes good morning
2: good morning thank you so much for having me on your show
0: well, thanks for being here. Now, I hear nuclear power, and I think Karen Silkwood. I hear, ar, ar, and if somebody's going to have to get hosed down, why shouldn't we be scared about small-scale nuclear power?
2: No, that's a great question. You know, we've, <clears throat> we've grown up in a culture that uh, has kind of uh, feared nuclear power, and, and I think there's some aspects of it bec- that, uh, that uh, people don't understand. Uh, what we've done with our small modular nuclear power reactor is come up with a new configuration that is super safe, uh, and it's it's very very simple and it's easy to explain. So I think that's going to go a long way to helping uh, the public understand exactly uh, the level of safety that we've uh, we've developed in this design. What's different? Well, uh, what we've done is we have a small nuclear reactor, uh, and so this is basically 15 fuel assemblies. So it's, uh, excuse me, 37 uh, fuel assemblies inside of a small. Uh, reactor vessel, uh, and that reactor vessel houses everything you need to produce steam, so it has the fuel, it has the uh, control rods, or the, the pressurizer, that's all in one small package. Uh, that package is about 15 feet in diameter and about 70 feet in length, and it's, uh, it can be assembled at the site. And then that, in turn, resides inside of a small steel containment, and that steel containment is designed for like 1,000 pounds per square inch, so it's a very robust uh, steel containment that steel containment then sits in a pool of water below ground. And so it's a very simple design and the level of safety afforded just by that configuration is enormous. This is something that we tested at Oregon State University.
0: So there seems like there's two issues of safety that have occurred to me ever since my Karen Silkwood days. One is explosions, okay, no, I guess, you know, reactor leaks, shall we say? The other is what do you do with the waste? So this configuration you're saying makes leaks impossible? Is that when you say safety? Is that what you mean?
2: That's right. Yeah. So what, uh, in terms of safety, well, we've just gone through an extensive review by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Uh, so this was a this was a twelve thousand page application. That's just the application, and we submitted that uh, back in twenty sixteen. We, we've now been approved. So we're the first small modular reactor that, that's been approved by the uh, in the U S. And we are now approved in terms of safety. That's what that review is for. Uh, we submitted uh, over 2 million pages of, of uh, technical information and supporting information uh, that was uh, looked at by the NRC. And the conclusion was that this reactor is safe. So uh, we're very proud of that accomplishment. And uh, we, we recognized early on uh, that this was something that could could it, be a real game changer for the industry.
0: Now, who is the market for this? Who buys these things? I think they've got them at Reed College, right? Is this something that powers an industrial site? The scale of this thing, who do you see? Is, what sort of the product market fit here? Who's your customer?
2: Yeah, so primarily we're, we're looking at the power production market. So it's a commercial power production machine. Uh, each module will produce about 60 megawatts of electricity. That's enough for fifty to 55,000 homes, just to give you a sense of scale. So your customer
0: would be like PGE. You'd be uh, like an electric company. It,
2: yeah, it could be uh, like a PGE, or it could be uh, other looking for smaller power. So uh, one of the markets that we're looking at very closely is uh, we've sized this so you can replace uh, uh, repurposed coal-fired plants. So we really fit uh, quite a range of markets, and that's just the power production side. Uh, we, we've been looking very closely at the water production side also, and we think that's a huge market also. And this is the, this is the perfect design for something like that.
0: How much does it cost to build one of these contraptions?
2: Well, we are uh, the first plant we're building is in Idaho, uh, and they've asked for a twelve module plant. Uh, and so that's a relatively large plant. So that's a seven hundred and twenty megawatts of of power. So we're looking at a, a, you know, half a million people uh, being served by by a plant that large. Uh, that, that plant of is Idaho's about population. 2.9 million in terms of, uh, Sorry, sorry,
0: two, Doc. Two pro- sorry, Doc. I missed what you said, and then Dad will will take yours. I can only hear one at a time. Go ahead, Doc. I'm,
1: ju- I'm just observing that the half million people is a very substantial portion of the Idaho population.
0: Yeah, keep talking about uh, the project in Idaho, Doctor.
2: Sure. Yeah. So the the project in Idaho is our first uh, our first project that uh, we're, we're working with. It's uh, a company called UAMPS, the Utah. Associated Missile Power System, and uh, UAMPS, uh, is uh, they have a carbon-free power project, and as part of that project, they'd like to install uh, 12 of our modules uh, in, in Idaho, in Idaho Falls, uh, and so that plant uh, is is uh, in terms of the the cost that uh, we're we're developing uh, and, and providing equipment to them is, is going to be somewhere around uh, three billion dollars. Uh, then on top of that, of course, there are the the the, uh, the cost for the site and the, the uh, the, the customer cost, or I should say the uh, utility cost for buildings and uh, uh, connections and for, uh, for things that support via plant.
0: Big question I've got. Well, so actually, so how, how much for the plant in Idaho, about how much that's going to cost?
2: Well, the, uh, the, the, the costs on our end are somewhere around uh, in terms of what we provide to the customer. Uh, and so we, we don't control the cost, uh, site-specific cost. Uh, so what we provide is somewhere around $3 billion or, or so. So it's a a sizable, but much, much less than large nuclear.
0: You're not buying one at Walmart. They said, (laughs) we we got a text in, they said regular reactors were safe. Why should we believe you? Uh, How long has one lasted so far? Uh, And when it, or if it leaks into the groundwater, what then? What say you, doctor?
2: Yeah, so this, uh, we've designed this, uh, each model designed for for 60 years of operation. Uh, Again, they're very small, so in terms of the amount of of fuel, and, uh, and if, you, if you relate fuel to, to, to things that can become radioactive, it's about 120th uh, the size of, of a large reactor. Uh, and so we have a very small amount of fuel inside a, the reactor vessel. And that reactor vessel then is housed inside of a fuel containment. Uh, so we have that multiple layers. And so we've added additional barriers, uh, about seven additional barriers to fission product release uh, before you actually release the environment. We've also determined, uh, through very detailed analysis, that even if you did have a leak, uh, it would not uh, exceed regulatory doses at the site boundary. So it's a very different design in that regard.
0: You say fuel. Is that uranium? Is that plutonium? What's the fuel?
2: So we're, we're using a standard uranium fuel. So that's something that's commercially available. Uh, and we want to make sure that we stuck with a, with a traditional fuel. We didn't want to go to anything exotic in terms of exotic materials or exotic. I like fuels. your
0: idea that uranium is not exotic. That is, to me, it's pretty. That's a that's a pretty significant thing. It's more it's more exotic than wood. But anyway, keep <laughs> going. <laughs> yeah,
2: I guess you know when you work with just with, a uh, standard
0: fuel, a uranium.
2: Time, it, it, it's standard, you know. It's been around. It's been around for forty years, more right. than forty years. So for us, it's very standard. Yep. Uh, there are some exotic fuels now that are being tested, which we, we have not uh, gone for that, just because. You know we talked. You mentioned earlier about the waste stream. Uh, we don't want to generate a new waste stream. We want we want something that's well understood, uh, that's well handled, and can can work well within the existing uh, licensing infrastructure.
0: What happens after well, sixty years? I, I have a cost
1: question. This, strikes me sure. the more significant cost question is not how much it costs to build it but what do you project the cost of a kw being as compared to what pge or ppnl are charging right now or what bonneville is charging right now what what's the projection for that
2: yeah that's a that's a great question so our, our target cost for the first site in idaho is uh five and a half cents per kilowatt hour and so that's uh that's uh uh, that's the uh, the first cost, and uh, of course, the Department of Energy is uh, supporting first-of-a-kind plants, uh, so uh, they're helping us achieve that that goal. Uh, but we believe that uh, the nth-of-a-kind plant, all subsequent plants, will come in around five and a half cents per kilowatt hour.
1: Competitive.
0: The. Be- I have, I, I, Go ahead.
1: I, I also. I don't know if I should frame this as a question or or an impression I would appreciate your comment on. I had the impression when nuclear energy first began, my impression was that there was a rush to adopt a technology that really hadn't been adequately vetted, hadn't been adequately researched, and the opportunity to make mistakes was very huge, that they, they tried to get into something that we really didn't know much about, thinking we knew a lot more and my impression has been that we now do now know a whole lot more, and so I'm encouraged. And my question is, is it realistic to think that we are going to be able to get off, entirely off, coal or oil-produced energy without nuclear power?
2: No, I, you know, there's, there's studies that are coming out now, and uh, there was one recently done for Washington State, you know, each state is developing their clean energy mandate. Uh, and you, you, the, the two uh, determining factors, one is you need a lot of power, uh, but it needs to be carbon free. Uh, so if, if the thought is to replace existing coal fire plants, you'd like to be able to do that with, with nuclear. Uh, and so that's gonna require small nuclear like ours. I, I think that the second part of it, of course, is that we need to be able to move into other sectors, not just the power sector, but the transportation sector. So this is where um, a design like this, which can produce hydrogen, uh, could be used to power uh, fuel cell cars. Uh, but I think it's going to be a mix of energy. Uh, but what we're learning now from the studies that are being published is that for states to meet their clean energy mandates, uh, if you add uh, new scale modules that are load following uh, to the grid, uh, they help balance the grid. Uh, you know, they provide frequency hunting uh, as well as provide that carbon-free power to replace some of the coal fire plants. And the, the uh, E3 study, it was called, the Energy and Environmental Economic Study uh, that was published, showed that if you add a new scale plants to the, the Washington grid, for example, uh, the, it would be an $8 billion a year reduction in cost uh, over just uh, uh, renewables plus storage. And so that's a significant study. And we're seeing that other states, uh, New Jersey did a similar study. Uh, they're finding that they just can't meet the 100% renewable goal. Uh, without some form of baseload or load-following carbon-free power.
0: And that means, in your mind, nuclear, so you you do make, in your pitch for this, a case that is better for the environment, yeah?
2: Well, absolutely. This is a very small, uh, if you think about uh, one of our modules, uh, one module, uh, 60 megawatts, uh, is equivalent to about 17,500 acres of wind farm. Uh, So it's a very small footprint, (laughs) produces a lot of energy, Uh, And uh, as a result, it has a a smaller environmental impact.
0: Do you have, uh, is your company prepared to accept, or maybe maybe your customers prepared to accept liability if you're wrong around any of the safety uh, hopes, claims, and research uh, are you aiming for? You still aiming for federal exemption to liability lawsuits, uh, or are you saying no? We're safe enough that we will accept responsibility uh, if something goes wrong.
2: Well, right now the whole industry, it, you know, falls under a uh, uh, this insurance blanket, the uh, Price Anderson Act, uh, and so we we would fall under that. Uh, we expect that, of course, in the lifetime of this plant, you'd never have to exercise that. Uh, but we do have to set aside uh, money uh, uh, there's a certain amount of funding that has to be provided uh, to cover the expense of, of that level of insurance which is included in the cost
0: the best argument i've heard in favor of nuclear is essentially what else you got right is it we're not unless you're going to have wind farms every single place uh, it's going to be really hard to produce enough electricity without to meet any of our climate goals without nuclear power that's the strongest argument i've heard the strongest argument I have heard against it includes a question I'm about to ask. Is well, let me ask it first. What's uh, what do you do with the waste? What happens after sixty years? You say they're designed for sixty years. Then what happens?
2: Right. Yeah. So it, uh, so right now the best industry practice is what's called dry cast storage, uh, and so for our design we have uh, the first one here in Idaho. Uh, we have uh, twelve modules. And so all all of the uh, the way that works is the fuel stays inside the reactor, producing power over three cycles for about six years. After that time, it goes to a, a pool of water where it cools uh, and remains cool for about five years. And then we move it to dry cast storage. And that's just basically a big concrete uh, uh, cylinder, uh, which uh, houses uh, some of the fuel assemblies. And it's, it's probably about 30, 30 uh, fuel assemblies or so. And then it, that is air-cooled. And so you, you basically have no, no active systems re- required for that, the, that cooling. Now, all of the fuel from all 12 modules for 60 years uh, fits on a pad about two and a half acres. So that gives you kind of a sense of, of how compact this really is. Uh, and if you compare that to coal ash or to other uh, waste products from other uh, power generation industries, it's really, really tiny.
0: So, again, so you, you bury it.
2: You, you, uh, so it would, it would uh, initially it would be in these dry cast storage, which uh, are typically above ground. There are some designs which are below ground. You warehouse it. Uh, that's right. And then, uh, then at, at that point, you we know, are once it's out of the reactor on those pads, that uh, that fuel belongs to the Department of Energy.
0: Wait, oh, wait, oh, let, me, let me let me follow that up. So after you're after so you sell it to somebody, they build the thing for three billion dollars, and then after sixty years, they wrap it in concrete and they put it in a warehouse, and then that. Warehouse and the depleted uranium that is inside that concrete is then owned by the people?
2: That's right. Yeah. So basically, it's what not, are they
0: supposed it, to do with it? it?
2: Yeah. So it's not a centralized, and there's a couple of options for that. Uh, so it, it, basically, it'll be stored on site for a period of time uh, until DOE takes possession. And there's several options in France and uh, in, uh, in uh, England, for example, uh, they reprocess the fuel. Uh, so what that means is that uh, in terms of energy content, even after it's been in the reactor and producing power continuously for six years, uh, about 95% of the energy content is still in that fuel. And that's why many countries now are saying, you know, if you bury this, and it, it, that really is a waste. Uh, there's 95% of energy content still in that fuel, and we should be reprocessing that. And that has uh, uh, multiple benefits. One, of course, uh, if you reprocess, you're, you're reusing the, 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 uh, the useful bits of the fuel. And secondly, you reduce the volume of waste by almost seventy percent. So in the end, what you have to bury or dispose of is, is much much less than uh, than just uh, disposing entire fuel assemblies.
0: You had a question uh, of what does it mean? You you, uh, you said it can be used for water production. We got a texted question that says, what does it mean? It can be used for water production. What do you mean?
2: Yeah, so we've we've uh, you know I, I worked with the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency in two thousand four, and what I learned there was I kept getting two questions. Uh, from, from the, the, uh, the delegates of different member states. One was, hey, do you have smaller nuclear power because we don't have a grid that can support it? And also, we need water. Uh, so I, I think we're at a point in, uh, in the history of, of the world here where water is going to become, uh, is, is becoming a crisis. Uh, people need clean water. So because our design is small, uh, in most places can't build a 1,000 megawatts uh, in, in near their communities, uh, because our module, one module, uh, could produce 60 million gallons of clean water per day uh, just through reverse osmosis. So it's a standard technology, but it's a different package. It's much, much smaller, uh, much, much more affordable, a single, a single module. Uh, and as a result, you can actually put it in locations where you can't put the large plant. Uh, so you know, 60 million, if you had a 12-pack, for example, could provide enough water for the city the size of Cape Town, South Africa.
0: And by provide water, where is where are the element? Because it's not fusion, right? We're not taking we're not oh, taking two hydrogens yeah. and combining with an oxygen and then making water. So when you say producing water, what are you doing?
2: Oh, so this it's a reverse osmosis process, which is desalination. So it's, you know, twenty of the largest cities in the world. So you take salt
0: water um, and you turn it. You take salt water and turn yeah, it into desalinated water. water. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay, yeah. and and I know we got to wrap, but I've got to ask. Uh, the, I, go ahead. I,
1: I need to pick. I need to quickly pick up. I want to make sure I heard right. You're saying that one of these will produce power that, that re, a renewable source would take 17,000 acres? That's correct.
2: That's so your, people your, that's understand the size farm. of that.
1: Yeah, 17,000 acres is about 25 square miles. So just imagine everything, for, if if you're familiar with Portland, folks, that would mean everything from the river to about Gateway and Burnside to the Columbia,
0: and that's, that's the, a lot of land. Okay, so that and and that is the and that is the most powerful pro argument. Let me offer the best counter that has been offered to me, and it included by a uh, relatively pointy-headed friend of mine. He said that, and he's wrestled with it. And he comes out as not a fan of nuclear power, and he said because Jeff, if we're going to be investing real dollars in energy technological development, we should be investing in optimal energy technological development. And that and until somebody's got an answer of what we're going to do with the waste, what we're going to do with decommissioned uh, modules, not just 60 years from now, but 600 years from now, if that stuff ever gets to scale, yeah, it can be small now, but it could be small lots of times, right? So it doesn't mean less nuclear material. And yeah, somebody will still be able to be used by somebody maybe someday, but there's still not an answer to the waste. And maybe what we should be doing is, aiming at our most technologically optimal strategy for energy development and then you combine it with Javon's paradox which basically says if you make more efficient your energy production you will encourage people to use more energy that was that that idea was learned in the 1860s around coal plants making coal more efficient so what do you think we do with this stuff 600 years from now or is your hope is your hope, doctor, that we aren't doing nuclear power 600 years from now, that we have moved to be able to just really tap it from the sun? And if, or are you thinking that we will have an idea by then we can launch it through spaceships or like tubes that send it into space? Uh, or do you, or if you think that it's that we're going to be able to get it from the sun, why not try to invest that $3 billion now on harvesting it from the sun?
2: Yeah, those those are all great uh, ideas for the future. I think we right now we were uh, you know we meet with 29 utilities in the U.S. and Canada every every six months, and they they have issues right now, uh, and and they're being challenged to meet the uh, state mandates by 2040 and 2050. And so right now we we see the only real approach is to is to start adding uh, small nuclear plants to replace some of the existing coal-fired plants, uh, so they can meet their goals by 2040 and 2050. Now, in the long term, I think the reprocessing technology, and I would certainly uh, encourage folks to take a look at what's being done at OSU, uh, there's a lot of great uh, research uh, going on in terms of how you can dispose of uh, or recycle uh, nuclear waste. Uh, and there's also different designs that are on the horizon which actually burn the waste. So there's, there's some real opportunities ahead. Uh, it's, it's a very exciting time to be in, in, uh, in uh, nuclear power.
0: Well, I appreciate it. We went way past. we got to get going, but thank you so much.
2: Well,
0: thanks for having you me. You do appreciate it. Thanks, Doc. going to We're going ju- we to jump immediately. Thank you, Dr. Reyes, so much. We're going to jump immediately to uh, Alex Zelensky. And Alex Zelensky, it, it turned out we had a lot of engagement around the question of nuclear power, m- even more than we anticipated. Alex, how you doing? I'm doing well. You wrote a really important, really challenging story. Uh, and the uh, and, and you might just you might just go through the painful story. You might just go through it.
3: A heavy story. Heavy. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, you know, I, I know I don't have a ton of time, but I would love to, to preview it a little bit and, you know, folks can explore on their own. Um, but, yeah, so I spent the past month in change, um, you know, reporting on protests, but also... Speaking, working on this longer investigative piece, um, speaking with a total of 11 different people who say they've experienced some kind of abuse, whether it's physical or sexual or psychological, uh, at the hands of a very well-known and revered member of Portland's black community. Um, the man is E.D. Mondanay, who is a longtime head pastor at uh, uh, North Portland Church, uh, Celebration Tabernacle, and has also been the president of um, Portland's NAACP chapter for two years. Uh, And I was contacted originally through a number of members in the NAACP who began seeing some issues with Mondanet's financial handlings as the head of the NAACP. started kind of poking around. Some of them knew people who had attended this church celebration, Tabernacle, that he um, he started and, and he's the head uh, pastor of uh, to see if there was any reason to believe, you know, Mondanay had similar financial issues at that church and um, not only did they discover this was partially true, they, they also learned that there were uh, people who had left the church uh, after ele- allegedly being Uh, sexually abused by him Um, kind of an unexpected turn in their research Uh, they were connected with one man in particular um, and then kind of with his permission uh, you know turned his story over to me which was kind of like pulling one thread you know um, all these other folks started kind of coming forward from the past he he knew a a few folks still from he had left about a decade ago Um, Because of this, he contacted me or connected me with a few other folks and they knew some other people and then they tried to dig up the contact information of other folks. A lot of people hadn't talked to each other for a decade and um, but all knew they were there on the same time and 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 my intention was to talk to anyone who was willing and, and interested in talking. And so it all ended up being people who kind of knew each other at the same period of time. I didn't cold call anyone. I didn't put anyone on the spot, you know. Um, and uh, I got a lot of different stories. Um, a lot of the majority of these folks who say they were at least three men were sexually, uh, allegedly sexually abused. Um, and the majority of them are black men. Um, the majority of them are teens. And so the, 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 the reason I think this story is really tricky to write in a moment like this and I think a lot of people understood that I was speaking to that the gravity of it, you know, in the moment of a um, huge monumental movement towards uh, that uh, uplifting Black lives and uh, centered on Black lives, and you want Black leadership that is um, supporting and trusting. And I think that was kind of part of a lot of the reasons these folks reached out. I mean, they they found out they weren't sure that Mondaine was. In this leadership position, they kind of, you know, blocked him out of their lives. And then, when this investigation began from the NWCP folks, they realized that this guy, this man, was was representing them not only um, at the NWCP level but also at the national level. Uh, earlier this year, during protests, Mondaine had spoken. He wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post. He had spoken with CNN, and um, and it kind of accelerated, I think, their concerns that this person was still in a leadership position and um, getting a lot of support and respect for um, for what he was doing. Um, and I think it's a tricky story, too, because this man has done a lot in the Portland community to spearhead really important campaigns, um, Portland Clean Energy Fund, um, the, the whole conversation around... Uh, masonry buildings and and putting, um, making sure that they're safe, but also not, you know, taking down all of these historically black owned businesses and properties. Um, and a lot of criminal justice reform work. So, you know, it's a complicated story, but I felt really thankful and honored to tell it. Um, the folks who talked to me were incredibly brave. And, um, yeah, I feel hopeful that it's out in the open um just to allow people to kind of give it a give it a moment to, to settle in
0: how do you walk through that decision how do you as you're uh, as you are um covering the black lives matter protests as you are wrestling with the reckoning that is happening as also you look at the sector that this is in, which is sort of the nonprofit sector. He has not made hundreds of millions of dollars uh, running uh, running an entertainment outfit or made billions of dollars as a financier, but has gained public recognition as an activist. How do you walk through that decision?
3: Right. Well, it's not easy. <laughs> um, a lot of it was me talking to other people um, who had been longtime members and who are longtime members of the Portland black community who can speak to and speak about the dynamics of it all a lot better than I can and, and understand it a lot better than I can. Um, and it's important to, to note that, yes, this is a man who's involved in nonprofit activist work, you know. Um, but from what I've heard from these folks, you know, really took advantage financially of a lot of people um, for for a while who were who are young and, and not being paid for their work. Um, and you know, while it's not heaps and heaps of money, there is still um, a, a financial aspect to this of of gaining money in that way. Um, I think. It's messy and really speaks to the um, the nuance of black leadership in any city um, I uh, and, and leadership in general in, in communities that aren't just white male run um, really wanting to be productive and supportive and, and, and help allow in any community a, a leader who's in a minority position or you know a um non-white group to um to have them be fully held accountable i think is is sometimes scary and frightening when that community doesn't have you know as much leadership as they deserve and so maybe at sometimes they're um they they they're a little bit more cautious to question and to hold people to higher standards and I think this is a moment when a, enough uh, people had, had seen this going on for long enough that it was time to kind of speak out.
0: Alex Zelensky, thank you so much for spending time and uh, and, and thank you for your work.
2: Yeah of course
0: mm-hmm. oh and,
3: and on a lighter note check in on our website uh Little later this morning for our endorsements.
0: All right. And I bet you we'll talk about that. And, you know, in fact, if we had a chance for a bonus episode next week, that might be fun, but we'd love to talk to you about those.
3: <laughs> yeah. Whatever
1: works.
0: All right. Thanks now, for me on. Thank you so much. Well, Bob, love you, Dad. We did it one more time.
1: We did indeed. And we'll be back on Monday
0: and I'll have straws then. All right, Dad. Take care. Thank you, everybody. And thank you, Democracy.